Well, thank you for having us uh, back with you this morning. It's uh, our pleasure, my wife and I, to be with you. I guess it was last August that we were here. And at that time, I think I did a little commercial about the Gampella Center for Christian Education in Burkina Faso. And it is at our center there that the uh, medical clinic is located that uh, was mentioned earlier for this uh, fundraising concert by the Windjammers. And as you heard, Mr. and Mrs. Windjammer are going to, uh, going to be there. So that's a motivation for you to go. And also just a plea on my behalf uh, for you to go and to participate and enjoy the concert and uh, provide much needed funds to equip the medical clinic that we have there with uh, equipment, particularly to care for pregnant women. They want to buy an ultrasound uh, piece of equipment and other things like that. So if you're thinking of going, perhaps I just pushed you across the line just a little bit. Well, we live in a culture that is focused on success. Failing and failures are not readily tolerated in our society. Success is the goal. The one who dies, they say, with the most toys, wins. And this worldview is quite common. You'd be interested to hear, and it probably isn't a surprise to you, it's quite common amongst Christians and promoted by some preachers. Positive thinking, they say, is the way to live your life. That will bring you all kinds of success. Claiming God's blessings is all you need to do, others say. One time when I was pastoring in Woodbridge at Calvary Baptist Church there, uh, I had a meeting with several of the local pastors. Um, one of them um, said to us when he came, he said, you know, I uh, told my wife the other day, he said, honey, I think God wants to bless us. And so he said, we went out and bought a new house. Benny Hinn's motto is, this is your day. I'm not quite sure what that means. What day for what? Something good is about to happen to you is the refrain that we often hear. Joel Osteen's one of his best-selling books, Your Best Life Now. But I want to tell you today that life isn't usually like that. The Christian life is not a bed of roses. Quite the contrary. Jesus said, in the world, you will have tribulation. And many of you know that's true. You've experienced or perhaps are experiencing family problems and employment issues and health challenges and financial difficulties and significant changes and on and on it goes. Sometimes, you see, I think we have the wrong idea of what the life of faith is all about. We think that life of faith is one in which God always acts in power and deliverance in miraculous ways. But I think what we're going to see this morning from our passage is that the only guarantee in the life of faith is your eternal destiny. The only guarantee in the life of faith is your eternal destiny. Last time I was here, I spoke from James 1, verses 2 to 4, on the uh, perspective of faith. Count it all joy. When you fall into various trials, James says. And so this morning, I'd like to just continue that theme, speaking about the, uh, the perseverance of faith. And our text is Hebrews chapter 11. If you'd like to turn there, if you have a Bible, Hebrews chapter 11, beginning at verse 32. 
And I'll read down to chapter 12, verse 2. So Hebrews 11, beginning at verse 32. And what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received received back their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us they should not be made perfect. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Let's just pray before we continue. Lord God, we're so grateful for another Lord's Day and the privilege of gathering together with your people to worship you. We thank you, Holy Spirit, for your uh, leading us this morning for the songs that have been so well sung and so beautifully selected to, uh, to enforce and undergird this message. We pray that this morning as we consider this topic of the perspective and perseverance of faith, that you would impress this upon us to help us to go on even in difficult times, even in times when we don't know how we can persevere, help us to endure and to look to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. For we pray this in his precious name. Amen. Well, the faith of these Hebrew Christians was being severely tested, and the writer of the, this letter is concerned as to whether their faith will withstand their suffering or whether they would turn back to their former way of life and give Christianity up completely. In an effort to encourage them, he writes this chapter to show them what the life of faith is all about. And he tells them, firstly, that sometimes God enables us by faith to enjoy sweet victories. Sometimes God enables us by faith to enjoy sweet victories. After telling us about so many heroes of faith in the Bible, the writer of this letter now, now says in our opening verse, verse 32, he says, I don't have time to tell you about all of them, and then he lists a few more. As if to say, now don't forget about Gideon in Judges 6 and 7. 
The angel of the Lord called him a valiant warrior and showed him the power of God by producing fire out of the rock that consumed his sacrifice. But Gideon, you see, was an insecure and fearful, almost pathetic figure, hiding, the, uh, hiding from the Midianites in a wine press, threshing his wheat, removing the altars to, of, to Baal at night so no one would see them or see him, casting two fleece before the Lord in his unbelief, taking 32,000 men when only 300 was, were required to fight the Midianite army. Even though it was like a swarm of locusts and their camels were as innumerable as the sand on the seashore. But the spirit of the Lord came upon him. And his, his fear, his insecurity and unbelief were replaced with courage and power. And with boldness, he declared, the Lord has handed the Midianites over to us. And he attacked with this little band of 300 with only their trumpets and pitchers as their weapons. And when they cried out a sword for the Lord and for Gideon, chaos erupted in the Midianite camp and they began to kill each other. And though their means of battle were weak, by the power of faith, God enabled them to enjoy a sweet victory over the Midianites. And how about Barak? In Judges 4 and 5, Barak was commissioned by Deborah, the judge of Israel, to deliver the Israelites from the domination of the Canaanites. And Barak agreed to take on the task so long as Deborah would go with him. And in the power of God, Barak went out against Sisera, the commander of the Canaanite army, with its 900 chariots. And at the end of the day, the army was destroyed and Sisera fled on foot and found shelter in the tent of a woman called Jael. And when he went to sleep, you'll probably remember these stories. She hammered a tent peg through his temple and he died. Barak believed God's promise to Deborah. He wasn't too proud to enlist her help. And he wasn't disgruntled that a woman was credited for killing Sisera. He only had one objective, to respond to God by faith. And he enjoyed the sweet victory of conquering kingdoms. Then there was Samson, of course, in Judges 13 to 16. Through the strength of the Spirit of the Lord, he tore a lion in pieces with his bare hands. He broke the ropes with which the Israelites had tied him in order to deliver him to the Philistines who ruled over them. And he killed a thousand men with the jawbone of a donkey. But because he revealed the secret of his strength to Delilah, he lost his God-given strength. And the Philistines captured him. They gouged out his eyes and bound him, and he became a grinder of grain in prison. But as the Philistines celebrated their victory, the Lord restored Samson's strength, and he broke the pillars of the temple so that those he killed at his death were more than those that he killed in his lifetime. Despite Samson's failures, at the end, he cast himself upon God by faith, and he enjoyed the sweet victory of faith. 
over the, people, over the Philistines. And it would be easy, I suppose, the writer is suggesting, to forget about Jephthah in Judges 11 and 12. I mean, how many of you could recite the story of Jephthah this morning? Jephthah had been expelled from the family home by his half-brothers because he was the son of a prostitute. But when the Israelites faced attack by the Ammonites, they called Jephthah back to be their commander. And Jephthah acted in faith. And the Spirit of the Lord came upon him, and he enjoyed sweet victory over the Ammonites. And who could forget David? The greatest example of David's faith was probably his victory over Goliath with a sling and a stone. He said to Goliath there in the valley of Elah, today the Lord will hand you over to me. And while all Israel, including their king, were shaking with fear, David's bold faith earned him a sweet victory in the valley of Elah that day. And then there was Samuel. As a little boy, Samuel responded by faith to the call of God. But unlike others, his faith wasn't exercised in military battle, but in spiritual battles with his own people. By faith, he condemned their wickedness, speaking boldly for God. And the ultimate sweetness of the victory of Samuel's faith was anointing God's man, David, to be king in place of the people's man, Saul. And finally, in case he has missed anyone, the writer says, in addition to all of these judges, there were the prophets. Don't forget those men who faithfully spoke for God despite vicious opposition, despite risking their lives and untold mockery. By faith, he says in verse 33, they conquered kingdoms, administered justice, obtained promises. Joshua believed the promise that he would conquer Canaan, and he received the promise. Despite his timidity that we've already spoken about, Gideon believed God that he would defeat the Midianites, and he received the promise. Despite his exile and desert wanderings, David believed God's promise that he would be king of Israel, and he received the promise. These men, you see, together with others, they shut the mouths of lions and quenched the raging fire. By faith, Daniel was fearless in the lion's den, and God honored his faith by shutting the lion's mouths. By faith, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego refused to bow down to Nebuchadnezzar, and they were cast into the fiery furnace. They were preserved by God, such that not even a hair of their head was singed. They didn't even have the smell of smoke on their, on their clothing because they acted in faith. Their faith was not dependent upon God guaranteeing them deliverance. If it meant death, then they were prepared to go through with it. By faith, they escaped the edge of the sword, like Elijah, who escaped from Jezebel. They gained strength in weakness. They became mighty in battle and put foreign armies to flight. Women received their dead, raised to life again, like the widow of Sarepta in 1 Kings chapter 17. And like the Shunammite woman in 2 Kings 4. When you hear all of this list about these great people that we all know their stories from the Old Testament, you may be tempted to say, that's what the Christian life is all about. Victory and weakness. Winning against all the odds. 
overcoming the impossible, soaring with eagles, mountaintop experiences, supernatural interventions. And some preachers will assure you that when you live the Christian life, your life will be one of continuous successes, one of constant highs, one of unparalleled prosperity, guarantee of healing from sicknesses. But remember, the life of faith isn't usually like that. Sometimes, God enables us by faith to enjoy sweet victories. But other times, God enables us by faith to endure bitter trials. Bitter trials. That's why he says in verse 35, but there were others. There were others. They didn't all stop the mouths of lions. They didn't all quench the heat of the furnace. They didn't all escape the death by the sword. They didn't all overcome kingdoms in battle. They didn't all receive the dead back to life again. Don't think that sweet victories are the norm in the life of faith. In fact, the only guarantee in the life of faith is our eternal destiny. Sometimes God enables people of faith to rise above the circumstances, to manifest God's power over the trials, and so bring him glory. But other times, God enables people of faith to go through terrible circumstances, to manifest God's power by enduring those trials, and so bring glory to him. They don't miraculously escape the circumstances, but they no less miraculously endure them. Others were tortured, he says here in verse 35. Here then is a different crowd from those that we have just talked about. These are lives of faith too, not lives of faith that enjoyed sweet victories, but lives of faith that endured bitter trials. Now the word that is used here for tortured is our word timpani, a type of drum. In this torture, the body was stretched out on an instrument like the skin of a drum and beaten with clubs until they died. Others were tortured. Despite the severity of the torture, they did not accept deliverance, it says, so that they might gain a better resurrection. And the women in verse 34 received back their dead but res by resurrection to temporal life. But these tortured believers in verse 35 refused deliverance because they looked for the resurrection to eternal life. Eternal life in the world to come. They knew their destiny was secure. That was their motivation for paying the utmost price, the hope of a better resurrection in the last day. This is the pinnacle of faith, one writer says. Willingness to accept the worst the world has to offer, that is death, because of trust in the best God has to offer, that is resurrection. Sometimes affliction just is not escapable. Sometimes physical sickness and suffering is inescapable. The pain and anguish of physical suffering is a reality of life. Sometimes suffering for Christ is inescapable as it is for men and women around the world today 
who are being persecuted for their faith in Christ and their belief in his word. They're suffering for righteousness sake. Like Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who left his comfortable position as a professor at the University of Berlin to fight against the pro-Hitler and pro-Nazi sentiment in the church in the 1940s. And after being arrested and imprisoned, he was eventually hung in the Flossenburg concentration camp just two days before the Americans came to liberate the camp. And he, as he faced the fury of the Third Reich, Bonhoeffer said this, The ultimate question is not how I heroically make the best of a bad situation, but rather how the coming generation can be enabled to live. In other words, he died as an example of faith to a future generation, and he died with a view to a future resurrection. Sometimes suffering is inescapable for people of faith. Some were tortured. Still others experienced mockings and scourgings, as well as chains and imprisonment. They suffered the mental torture of mockery, scorn, derision, disdain, ridicule, contempt for their faith in God. They suffered the physical torture of scourging, torture with, the whip, with a whip of leather thongs. Others were stoned. They were sawn in two. They died by the sword. Although some escaped the edge of the sword, according to verse 34, others here in verse 37 were killed by the sword. History tells us that the people were so angry, for example, at Isaiah's preaching that Manasseh had him sawn in half. And still others wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, afflicted, and mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy. They wandered in deserts and on mountains, hidden in caves and holes in the ground. They lived with and like the wild beasts, having only skins for clothes, destitute, cave dwellers, nomads, no homes. All these by faith endured bitter trials, the like of which we will probably never see. They experienced the most severe form of persecution and suffering that you can imagine, but by faith they would not deny the Lord even if that meant death. These were people of faith of whom the world was not worthy. John Brown, a great 19th century Scottish preacher, writes this, Their persecutors thought them not worthy of the world, but the truth was the world was not worthy of them. Just as they did not deserve their sufferings, so the world did not deserve them. Here are two then entirely different aspects to the life of faith. Some people are rewarded for their faith during their lifetime, and others are rewarded for their faith after their lifetime. Sometimes through a life of faith, God glorifies himself with mighty triumphs, sweet victories, acts of great power. But sometimes through a life of faith, God glorifies himself through the endurance of bitter trials. For most of us, we need faith from God to sustain us 
through spiritual temptations, through emotional turmoil, through physical suffering, through ill health and bankruptcy and unemployment and broken relationships. But other Christians today need the grace of God to meet bitter persecution for their faith, torture and imprisonment and death. Faith can enable us to endure the severest sufferings. There is no other explanation for it than that. The Hebrew Christians about whom we're reading and to whom this letter was written were suffering for Christ's sake and the fear was that they might give up. They might give up their faith. And so this is an encouragement to them and, and to us by inference saying, you can do it. You can endure more than you could ever imagine for the sake of Christ and for his glory. What a contrast with today's health and wealth messages. They claim that God wants all of us to be prosperous, that God will heal all of our sicknesses, that if you're not wealthy and healthy, it's because you lack faith. Well, let me assure you, poverty and sickness and suffering are part and parcel of faith in a sinful world. Not all God's people will be rid of sickness in this life. Not all of God's people have fat bank accounts. And besides, fat bank accounts is no evidence of a life of faith. Some of the men and women of our faith in our chapter were killed with the sword while others escaped. Some saw sicknesses healed while others didn't. Some experienced the miracle of dead restored to life while others never saw their loved ones again. Do you know why? Because in his sovereignty, sometimes God enables us by faith to enjoy sweet victories, while at other times God enables us by faith to endure bitter trials. But notice this. At all times, God enables us by faith to envision an eternal reward. Verse 39 says, all these were approved through their faith. In other words, all of these were honored for their faith. All of these, of course, referring to those who are mentioned here directly or indirectly. Some whose faith enabled them to enjoy sweet victories and some whose faith enabled them to endure bitter trials. They were commended through their faith. Their lives of faith still stand as models of Christian faith. They were well thought of then and still today. They're approved by God. They're recorded in this hall of faith, but they did not receive, it says, the promise. Notice that it does not say they did not receive the promises, plural, but they did not receive the promise, singular. Many of them did receive promises, but they did not receive the promise. What promise then did they know but not receive? What promise did they know but not receive? They knew the promise that the Redeemer was coming, that a son would be born and a child would be given, that a virgin would conceive and bring forth a child, but they didn't know who or when or where or how. 
They knew the promise that the Messiah would deliver them, that the seed of the woman would bruise the head of the serpent, but they didn't know who it would be or how. They knew the promise of blessing through the Redeemer, that in Abraham all the families of the earth would be blessed, but they didn't know what the blessing would be. They knew the promise of salvation, that God would create a new covenant and give them a new heart, but they didn't know what it was. They knew the promise of the final consummation of all things, that in my flesh I shall see God, but they didn't know when or how. They knew the promise, but they didn't receive it. Their faith was in the ultimate fulfillment of the promise of redemption in the coming Redeemer for whom they looked. But in their lifetime, it didn't happen. Why did they not receive the promise? Not because there was anything deficient in them, but because God had provided something better for us, verse 40 says. The better thing that God planned for us was the coming of the Messiah and his atoning sacrifice in our era of history so that they, that is the Old Testament believers, would not be made perfect without or apart from us. So that, in other words, so that both Old Testament and New Testament believers will enter into the completion of our salvation at the same time, perfected together, receiving the promise together. Their faith was in Christ's future work. Our faith is in Christ's finished work. And that's far better. We know the completion and fullness of Christ's atoning sacrifice. That's far better. They died, you see, without receiving the promise, but they will receive it together with us. They too will be presented to God, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but holy and without blemish. They too will receive new bodies like Christ's glorious body. They too will hear the shout and be caught up to meet Christ in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. What an encouragement that must have been to these Hebrew Christians who, like these Old Testament saints, needed patience so that after enduring the will of God, they may obtain the promise. Like these Hebrew Christians and the Old Testament saints, we still live in hope of the glory of God. We still live with an eternal perspective. We still await the completion of our salvation. We still wait for the consummation of all things, you see. We still await the perfection of our faith. So the message is, hang on. Face the future in the perseverance and power of faith because Christ is coming. Your eternal destiny is secure. If you're enduring here this morning, if you're persevering, hang on. The completion of your faith is coming. If you don't know how to face tomorrow, hang on. The return of Christ is nearer than when you first believed. If you think you can't endure for one more day, hang on. The night is far spent, and the day is at hand. So what does all this mean then for us? It means that we can face the future in faith by imitating this great cloud of witnesses. 
chapter 12, verse 1 says, by living with the perseverance and power of faith, just like these great men and women that we have read about in this chapter. They attested to the faithfulness of God that will sustain us to the end, to the steadfastness of faith that enables us to endure, even when we don't know how it will all work out. Therefore, no matter what our experiences of faith may be, whether we enjoy sweet victories or endure bitter trials, let us imitate these great witnesses who have gone before us. Let us lay aside every hindrance and the sin that so easily ensnares us, setting aside everything that might slow us down or trip us up as we run this race of faith to the finish line. Let us run with endurance the race that lies before us. For the Christian life, you see, is not a race of speed in which the first to cross the finish line wins, but it is a race of endurance in which all who cross the finish line win the crown of life. As this great cloud of witnesses lived holy lives, so ought we. As they practiced their faith, so ought we. As they endured as seeing him who is invisible, so ought we. So we can persevere in faith by imitating the faith of this great cloud of witnesses. But more than that, we can face the future in faith by imitating the faith of Jesus, the greatest witness of all, keeping our eyes on Jesus. He is our motivation for living in the perseverance of faith. Though the men and women of this hall of faith were great, the only person that ever lived a perfectly exemplary life of faith was Jesus Christ. He's the one we should imitate and follow. Remember, the only guarantee in the life of faith is your eternal destiny. So let's face the future in faith by looking to Jesus. No matter what our circumstances, no matter what the future may be, let's have an eternal perspective by setting our minds on things above and not on things on the earth. Let us not focus on the things that are seen, as we read earlier, but on the things that are not seen. That is, envision the end. For the things that are seen are temporal, but the things that are not seen are eternal. Let us look to Jesus, the one who persevered, the one who endured the suffering of the cross, the one who despised the shame and ignominy of crucifixion. Let us persevere by keeping our eyes on him, the one who saves us, the one who keeps us, and the one who's coming back for us. May that be our perspective today. And if you've never repented of your sins and trusted Christ alone for salvation, there's no better time than now. If you are a Christian, are you looking for the Lord's return? Can you say with me, Maranatha, even so come, Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Lord God, we're so grateful for the record of your word in particular. As we've read this morning, the experiences of those who lived lives of faith, some of whom were delivered from trials and suffering 
and opposition and ridicule. Others who were not. What a lesson for us this morning. Yes, we want to see your power displayed in our lives. But sometimes we're not delivered from those things that you allow us to pass through. And I pray that this morning this message may be a motivation for all of us to persevere in faith and to not give up. For the end is near. Your return, Lord Jesus, is near. We look forward to it at any moment. We want to be ready for you at your return, to be watching and waiting so that we will not be ashamed before you at your coming. So if there are any here this morning who are passing through difficult and heavy burdens, I pray, Lord Jesus, today that they will hear your voice, they will see your face, and by faith they will endure. For we pray this in your precious name. Amen.